Father, we just come in Jesus' name and through his blood, and Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for an open heaven that you're here, your glory's here. Holy Spirit, for coming to anoint and empower this time. And Lord, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken under a mighty anointing, and the Holy Spirit to move upon, brood upon, Lord, the people. You know, the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation, or, or Genesis, rather, was there was a brooding over the waters. You know, there's something... Holy Spirit, just move upon your people tonight, even those that are going to be through a podcast or whatever, that they would feel the presence and power of the Holy Spirit move upon all of us, Lord. And Lord Jesus, that you be in our midst, and Father, your eyes of favor, shining countenance upon us, but everything will be accomplished. And through this time, let the winds of the Spirit carry this work it's supposed to go and land in a good fertile soil. It will take root and grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains it will not return void, but go forth and accomplish that which God sent it to do. Lord, we thank you for everything accomplished in and through this, that you will to be done. As we submit unto God, resist the devil. We take authority as a church in anything that would try to hinder this word. We command to be bound in Jesus' name right now. You will back off in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your angels clearing that out. And everything will flow tonight as it's supposed to, and everything will be accomplished. And we stand on this promise together. Your word will not return void. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I'm dealing with actually part seven of moving from curse to blessing, but I'm going to be dealing also with the fact that we're at the Feast of Trumpets, which begins this Monday night. And so the Feast of the Lord always begin in the evening because they begin at sunset. It's called the Erev, and then it goes through a 24-hour period and ends the next sunset. But Yom Teruah is kind of interesting because in ancient times, I'll give you this as just real quick, but it was to keep up with these feast times, it was lunar. They had to keep up with the cycles of the moon. Every new moon was a new Hebrew month, and they had to count them off. And on the seventh month, called Tishri, when the crescent moon would just begin, a new moon, that's when the Feast of Trumpets began. And so the priests were the ones that kept up with all this. <clears throat> so to keep up with it, they had to have watchmen. This is really interesting to me. Because how many knows that when it was the fullness of time for Jesus to fulfill Passover by dying on the day of Passover as our Passover lamb. Okay, when that time drew near, there was such a darkness, such a spiritual warfare, such an intensity about what was going on, and the disciples were falling asleep. And Jesus asked them, could you, here they are in Gethsemane, he's sweating blood. He said, could you not tarry with me one hour? He said, you better watch and pray, because your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so watchmen in the Bible speaks of prayer warriors. And how many knows in these latter days, we need to have a strong personal prayer life. We really do. We're going to have to be strong in our prayers. And anyway, so Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, they would be, the priest would assign watchmen, and they would look up. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says when you see all these things happening, look up for your, rede your redemption draws nigh. So we're at a time where we're seeing all these end-time prophecies either being fulfilled or about to be fulfilled. And the Bible says to begin to look upward. And Jesus said there would be signs and the sun, the moon, the stars, and also on the earth. And he spoke of these signs, and, and we're seeing all these things happen. And also the watchmen, as they looked up, 
they had to pay attention to the signs. They had to know that it was almost time, you see. The watchmen know that the day of the Lord is near. The watchmen sense it. The world, the world goes on like nothing's happening, and, and the religious do too. But God's remnant, the watchmen, know the signs. They sense the soon coming of the Lord. They're looking up. They know that he's about to come. And when they would see the crescent moon begin to appear, the new moon, they knew that the Feast of Trumpets had begun, and they would build these bonfires on the top of hills, and the priest would begin to blast the shofar. And it began the Feast of Trumpets. And so it was the day of the blasting of the shofar. But interestingly enough, it was not just one 24-hour period. It actually carried over to day two because it would take time for that information to get all the way out there. And so the Feast of Trumpets is unique because nobody knows, hear what I'm saying, nobody knows the exact day nor the exact hour that it's going to begin. I know with modern technology we can do that. But back in ancient times, they had to be watching. And it became, it became known like a synonymous thing as nobody knows the day nor the hour. You see, the watchmen had to watch for it. And so it's interesting that, that this feast speaks prophetically of the rapture because the Lord comes as a thief in the night when we don't expect it, and we have to be watching and looking for him. We have to be ready. And so that's some things about this feast that, that are very interesting to me. And also in Messianic synagogues around the world, Christians that uh, you know, worship in that way, a Feast of Trumpets is celebrated because the way that they would go about this is they would have different people, for example, that played the shofar throughout the sanctuary at church, and then they have a, somebody that's called a cantor It sings up in the front, and, and he would say the different types of sounds. And, and throughout the next short time, because there's supposed to be around 100 blasts, different, the different shofar sounds would be sounded around the sanctuary, around the sanctuary, keep going on, keep going on. And then at the end... After he felt that a hundred blasts had been heard, he would shout um, uh, Tekiah Hagadol, which means the last trump, you see. And they would all blast the shofar as loud, as strong as they could and hold it out. And that's the late, uh, the last great trumpet blast, the shofar blast in the synagogue. So that's interesting because the Apostle Paul said at the last trump. And so again, you see figurative things here. And to us, we grew up here in America, we, we think of like the 4th of July. I mean, it's just commonplace to us that we think of fireworks. And when we think of Thanksgiving, we think of turkey and dressing. You know, there's certain things that we just connect. Well, in the Hebrew culture, especially back in this time, if you were to talk about the last Trump, like Paul, who was a rabbi, I mean, everybody he was speaking to that was Jewish, would have, their minds would have just instantly went back to the Feast of Trumpets at church in that last great shofar blast. Isn't that interesting? So there's a lot of symbolism that goes back to this time frame. You don't know the exact day nor the exact hour. Even if the Lord was going to come at this time, there's, it's celebrated over a two-day period, you don't know the exact day. You wouldn't know the exact hour. You have to be looking up. You have to be watching. You have to be ready. There's a lot of symbolism here. 
So as I get into this tonight, I want to talk also about some things I feel are very important. I've been dealing with moving from curse to blessing, and I want to say this tonight real clear. Right off the bat, just write this down if you're taking notes. We have to discern in these last days any area of our lives or ministry where there's any type of satanic, ungodly control. You have to break free from that control. How many knows that there are simply controlling people that are out there? They're in families. They're in neighborhoods, they're in workplaces, they're in the school system, and they are definitely in our government. (laughs) But there are controlling people out there. And you have to discern where ungodly control is coming from. You know this, I don't have, certainly don't have time to rabbit trail here, but you know that ungodly control is connected to witchcraft in the Bible. But we have to break free discern where there's any type of ungodly control and break it off your life. Because I'm going to tell you about ungodly control. It's a spiritual thing. You don't see it with your natural eye. But it's kind of like, have you guys ever seen, you know, we talk about the Bible says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How many have ever seen like a stagecoach of some kind where you have two different horses and they're yoked together? Now, you can't be unequally yoked, Paul said, where you had some kind of like a Clydesdale and then like a Shetland pony. (laughs) How many knows you're just going to end up going in circles, right? And that pony is just going to get drug along for the ride. So you've got to be equally yoked, and that's obviously in marriage, and and I would say also um, even in close relationships, you want to make sure that you're hanging out with people that will strengthen you. But... My point here is this, that ungodly control is like a yoke that tries to slip around your neck. You don't see it with your natural eye. You don't necessarily know even that it's there, but you, can, you are affected by it, and it begins to affect your life. So make sure that you discern where that yoke is, and you've got to break it. All these different types of yokes, the Bible says that the anointing will destroy the yoke. Everybody say that. The anointing will destroy the yoke. And so wherever there's that ungodly control, the devil has tried to slip some kind of yoke around your neck. You didn't even know, but it's affected. Once you're yoked in, where that other controlling person or whatever starts turning, it tries to force your life in directions that God did not intend. It's ungodly control, manipulation, intimidation, domination, people that are dominating, they want to control things, they want to control um, the decisions you make, etc. It's an ungodly thing. You got to be careful because that will try to slip around your neck and pull your life in different directions. Discern it, break free from it, and don't tolerate it at all. And I'm going to tell you, if they're really controlling people and you know how they are, I would strongly encourage you to not associate with them. I just recently had somebody I hadn't seen in a long time come to me wanting help and ask me to pray for them because they had a coworker that they had become friends with that was very controlling. And they knew that somehow this was affecting them spiritually. And God gave them a dream. In the dream, this person saw how they were like, like claws dug down in their life 
and it was affecting them spiritually by that ungodly control. And this person looked me up because they live in a different city, so they can't come here, but they looked me up, came all the way out here and said, Pastor, please pray for me because in the dream God gave me, God used you to pull those things off me. And so I prayed with the person and broke that off of them, and you could feel it physically come up. You know what that is? That witchcraft control from that coworker broke off. The anointing breaks and destroys the yoke, okay? So be careful because this control is no joke. It is serious. And Derek Prince said about witchcraft, he said, he said, if I was to tell you the greatest hindrance to your destiny, he said, if I was to give you probably 100 guesses for you to guess what the greatest hindrance to your destiny is, he said, you would probably never guess it. So he said, I'm just going to tell you right out, it's witchcraft control. The devil tries to put control on people and steer their life in wrong directions, oppress them. And let me back that statement up that Derek said with Scripture. The prophet Elijah was called by God. He was anointed probably like no other prophet up until his time. And God used him in such a mighty way to break the power of Jezebel, to kill the prophets of Baal, all the things that Elijah was used to do. But yet, there was some kind of a spirit of control from Jezebel that jumped on that prophet Elijah and he ended up this great man of God that just days before had saw fire fall from heaven. Remember the story. And all those prophets of Baal and Asher were killed. Major victory, national victory, national prominence. He's now, after something jumped on him and oppressed him, that, that witchcraft control, he's now just a few days later lying out in the middle of nowhere under a tree wanting to die. Went into a depression. This shut him down so bad that he ended up way out in the wilderness and he was singing this sad song about nobody cares, nobody loves God anymore. I'm no better than my fathers and just, I want to go home. He was all in this depression and God finally told Elijah, he said, you know what? I love you and I've used you mightily, but you're going to have to go throw your mantle on Elisha because he's going to have to finish your race because Elijah didn't break out of that. You've got to get that yoke off you and break out of it, or it can shut people completely down. Anyway, I just felt to strongly share that because I do feel that there are people under the sound of my voice tonight, I feel this very strongly, that there is control in your life that's not from God, and you need to discern it, and you need to break it off your life. It's serious. It can affect people. It can affect their life to the, to the degree that all uh, many blessings and things that God had for them are never really truly fully obtained because something hindered it, like Elijah. God wanted to use Elijah to finish all that, but it ended up having to be somebody else finish it because he couldn't. Don't let the devil shut you down like that. All right, so let me move on. Those that follow our ministry and, and follow our teachings and all that, let me just say this real quick because a lot of people connect with the podcast. If you're interested in some in-depth teaching about the fall feast because maybe it's new to you, my wife and I are doing something just as a video. We'll probably do about three or four of them. That'll be on our Vimeo page. So if you go to fnirevival.com and go to the Vimeo, you can see it there. And we're going to be talking about the fall feast and what they mean 
how they're relevant today, how they're prophetically speaking of the end times, etc. So if you want some in-depth teaching, because I'm not going to be able to get into that tonight. Um, I wanted to, but how many knows that God gives us what to preach? And so we obey the Lord. And this is what God is saying tonight. Now, again, people that follow our ministry, I think that you know this, but how many of you guys would say, Pastor Scott, I see it, I agree with you, we are living in the last days and perilous times have come. And so these scriptures speak of these times. And if you look at 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, but the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. How many of us have seen people falling away from the faith? Sadly, we have, many. And it says that they're paying attention to deceitful spirits. That can be translated seducing spirits, but nonetheless, it is evil spirits, demonic spirits, that are, they're paying attention to them. They're, those demonic forces are pulling them, seducing them spiritually away from God. They're seducing and pulling them away from Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm concerned about this, and some things that I say in my sermons, I kind of shoot straight because I believe that people that follow our ministry want to hear the truth. How many of you guys want to hear the truth? I'm really concerned about some things, and I think you share my concerns, but there was recently a poll that was taken, and I saw this in different places, Uh, I heard it from one source and then Charisma Magazine. I believe I also saw this on the 700 Club's news. But there was a poll taken. And out of this upcoming generation that's coming up, millennials, they took a poll. And there was something like this. I believe it was 60%. You can look it up. I, I may be wrong. It might be 80, but I think it was 60% of millennial professing Christians do not believe now that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. In other words, they themselves are not saved. Hello? That's 60% anyway. Their list, look at, let me read this again. That 60%, they're falling away from the faith. Look at this. Paying attention to deceiving demons. And it says, teachings of demons. Now, you're not going to see some horned critter uh, sitting up with a microphone. This is coming through people that are being used of demonic spirits to teach things that are leading people astray. And let me say this in love, but this is a time that we better know the Lord for ourselves. We better know what the Bible says for ourselves. And we better have a prayer life and get to know the Holy Spirit for ourselves. Because there's going to be a lot of deception. Jesus, whenever the disciples, there was like a confidential briefing because Jesus always for the most part, uh, what we read, he talks to large groups of people, but there was kind of a confidential briefing of, of some kind here that the disciples came to him in private, and they said, Jesus, talk to us about these end times. What's the sign of the end? What's the sign of your coming? 
What's it going to look like? What, what can we learn? And Jesus, the very first thing Jesus says to them is, watch out that nobody deceive you. And you're going to see that all through the scriptures, it implies that there would be great deception. Let me say this again. The Spirit explicitly says that there's going to be people falling away from the faith, listening to doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits. That's pulling them, the, pulling them away. In verse 2, by means of hypocrisy of liars, this is those false teachers, by the way, that are leading people astray, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Let me tell you, I want to keep a tender heart toward God. You know, as I, sometimes I grill, many of you do, you know, you, you get some steaks, whatever, and you get the grill really hot, and what do you do? You put the steak on for a couple minutes, and it sears the outside. You flip it, sears the outside, and then you can turn it down. But what that searing does, it traps the moisture. But here's the, here's the warning here. Hypocritical liars with a seared conscience. The Holy Spirit will only deal with people up to, I mean, look, we can harden our own hearts. We can sear our own conscience by continually ignoring the conviction of the Holy Ghost. And I want to keep my heart tender. I don't want to have a seared conscience that God isn't speaking, getting through that hardened heart, that seared conscience any longer. Let me just encourage you, keep a tender heart before God. And then it goes on in verse 3. This is really interesting to me because, I mean, the Apostle Paul was prophesying this way before some of these advents I'm about to describe. So picture the Apostle Paul being used as, as not only an apostle, but a prophet. And it's like God gives the apostle. How many of you guys have ever looked through a really good telescope that you can see up in the sky really well? I mean, you can see things, and it's like great distance. And, and God gave the Apostle Paul here like a spiritual telescope that he was looking down through the ages. And Paul probably thought, as all the early church did, that the coming of the Lord was probably pretty, pretty soon. He certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought 2,000 years. you know. But he was looking without realizing it down hundreds and even thousands of years. Are you all seeing what I'm saying here? And look at what he says. Now, let's keep this in context. There's going to be a falling away, great deception. There's going to be teachers that lead people astray and seared consciences. And look at this. It goes on to say in verse 3, who forbid marriage. That's interesting. When you think about religious, a religious group that forbids marriage, what do you think about? Roman Catholicism. And I'm going to say some things here in a moment that you need to hear. And then he goes on to say, and Paul, by the way, being a Jew, he says, and they advocate abstaining from foods which God created. When you think about abstaining from foods, what do you think of? Kosher, Judaism. He said, for which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing to be rejected as it is received with gratitude. And look at this, it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So, you know what? Let me just try to clear something up here because I believe this is an, what I'm going to say is going to help kind of sum this up. What makes true biblical Christianity different from any other religion or cult 
or belief system in the world is this. We know that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. At the cross, it's not of works. You don't earn it. It is a free gift by faith in what Jesus did. That's it. All other religious systems and belief systems, let me explain it. How do Roman Catholics believe that they're saved? They believed, and you'll, I have somebody in here that grew up Catholic and will confirm this, you're saved through the Catholic Church by being a good little Catholic. By doing what you're told and not doing what, you know, you're doing it by works. Your salvation comes by doing what the priest tells you to do. Okay? How in the Jewish faith are people supposedly saved? By being a good little Jew. By doing what the rabbis tell you. Do this, don't do this. You see, same thing with Mormonism. How is the Mormon saved? By works. You obey their so-called prophets. You do this, you don't do that. I mean, they got some, you think, Rabbinic Talmudic Judaism has rules. The Mormons got rules, and then some more. I mean, it's all about it's all about earning your salvation. You understand what I'm saying here? And here's the crazy thing about true biblical Christianity. Some of you, this is before your time, and, and to a degree, mine as well. But in 1976, there was a famous serial killer, the son of Sam, that terrorized upstate New York and was killing people. And he was mixed up in the occult, specifically in some Satanism and some groups that were there. And, and he was, I mean, he was shooting people at random, like a 45 Magnum. They'd be in their car, and he'd just go up and just shoot them. And he killed several people. I don't remember how many, but I think it was something like a dozen or so. And here's the interesting thing. The son of Sam, he was Berkowitz. He's a Jewish guy. He didn't know God. He didn't know the Lord. And he was obviously mixed up in Satanism had murdered all these people, goes to prison. He's in there for life. But at some point in time, he truly comes to know Jesus Christ. And it's real. As a matter of fact, Steve Hill met him and talked to him, and they did a video together that you can watch on YouTube to this day. And it was called Son of Sam, Son of, Sam, Son of Hope. And Steve knew Berkowitz, talked to him, and, he's, and I remember Steve talking about saying, you know, people... He said, I, Steve said, I understand that the parents hate him, and I get all of that. But the guy is now a Christian. And here's the interesting thing. Please hear what I'm saying, because this is going to just, I mean, blow people, religious people's minds. You ready? The son of Sam is now a Christian. That means when he dies, he's right with God. His sins are forgiven. He's going to go to heaven. Because he, he's put his faith in Christ. But here's the thing. If some of those parents who were victims, and I can't tell you how sorry I am for what happened to you, but if you hate his guts with all your heart and you never forgive him and you die in your sin, you're not going there. You're not going to go to heaven. That's the whole thing about Christianity. It's not based on your, your sinful past or, or you earning something. It's faith in Christ alone. And let me tell you, that levels the playing field for everybody. There's no big eyes. There's no little use. It doesn't matter your, your political status, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're somebody famous or somebody nobody's ever heard of. If you're rich or poor, nothing matters. All of a sudden, the foot of the cross becomes even ground for everybody. You're either going to humble yourself 
and accept what Jesus did for you and be born again and have your sins forgiven, or you're not, but that's the end of the matter. You'll never earn salvation with God. Jesus earned it at the cross for you. He lived a sinless life. And so this right here, I believe I kind of summed up in essence of what Paul was warning, that there's going to be deceiving spirits, and it says those words. This isn't something I'm just coming up with. It says, the Holy Spirit says in latter times there will be people falling away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving demons and teachings of demons by means of teachers that have a seared conscience. They're leading people astray. And so we've got to make sure that we hold on to the faith. I think about the book of Jude where it says, contend for the faith as given once and for all. Contend for the faith. We're going to have to know what we believe and we're going to have to contend for it. Don't let anybody lead you astray. Know what the Bible says. And then 2 Timothy 3, 1, it says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. That may not be the best translation because perilous times will come. Perilous is probably better. But the best translation, that word is fierce. And fierce implies, like if you're going, maybe you're out camping or something, and, and all of a sudden you accidentally stumble upon a wolf and it's sitting there, its hair begins to stand up, and it's showing its teeth, and it's growling, and it's, it's very angry. That is a fierce animal. And the Bible implies that the last days would be fierce. And we're seeing those times. And it goes on to describe people. And this is what concerns me because I see it. I, I thought about this the other day. I was just simply going out running some errands, and I, I don't know why I was thinking about it, but I was thinking about like, when I was growing up in the 80s and, and into the 90s, and I was growing up and I was thinking about I miss some of the simplicity and some of the, I don't know, just the values and the simplicity of the times because things have gotten weird. And it's just so oppressive. And, and, it, and it, but the problem is right here is how people are changing. People are becoming so, and I love everybody, I, I pray for everybody to be saved and all that, but I'm just saying as a society as a whole, you look at the mass group of millions of people, society as a whole, you're seeing that overall people are turning into this right here. People are getting more bitter and angry, and social media has brought out the worst in people. The vitriol, just the hatefulness, but look at what it says. It's, it's Bible prophecy unfolding in our time. It says that people will become like this. They will be lovers of self. I'm seeing more selfishness now than I've probably ever seen. Lovers of money. They're boastful and arrogant. They're slanderers, disobedient to parents. They're ungrateful. You're seeing more people ungrateful today, entitled. Brother Benny was saying that he, he was in the grocery store and he heard a couple younger people talking and one of them held up like a loaf of bread or something and said, you know, I should just be able to just somebody give me this if I need it. And Benny was thinking, man, you an, an entitled little brat. Get a job, you know. Do, uh, there's an entitled thing. 
There, there's an, an ungrateful, not thankful attitude, unholy, unloving. How many feel that just going out and about? I mean, there's, the road rage now is much more than it used to be 20 years ago. People are more angry. They're more unloving. They're irreconcilable. Malicious gossips without self-control. People just fly off the handle. They're brutal. I think about these street violent activities. That's brutal. They're haters of good. How many feel that there's a generation coming up that's more and more hating the Bible, what God stands for, you know? Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How many are seeing more and more people caught up with the love of pleasure, sensuality, seductiveness, the things of this world? Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, this is serious. There's people that are religious, but they don't know God. They have a form of godliness, a form of religion, but they deny the power of God, which is true salvation. They, they're religious, but they don't really know God. That's what's scary. They have a form of godliness, but no power. And it says, avoid such people. And those of us that are true biblical Christians, in the day and age that we're living, our circle of close friends may shrink down some. Our associations are going to shrink down a little bit. It says, for among them are those that slip into households. Now, please follow me because I'm dealing with some end-time prophecy here. The Apostle Paul saw these days. To me, that's awesome to really stop and think about that. He said, for among these, he's talking about the end time. He said, they would be the type that'll slip in the households and captivate weak women that are weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. And he says that some of these people would always be learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many see a society that, that's always talking about more information and more knowledge, yet they don't know what really matters? They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They really don't know his word. They don't know things that are eternal. And look at this. This is very concerning to me, and I hope everybody catches this. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Now, I went back and studied this, and in Jewish writings, this is, isn't in the Old Testament as we have it, but in Jewish writings, Janus and Jambres were the two sons of Balaam. Balaam was the guy, remember, that was hired to curse Israel and couldn't. He's that guy. He, he would have been like a shaman or a witch doctor, a medicine man. He was very powerful, actually, to the degree that kings sought him out. It's a fact he, in Jewish writings the Pharaoh knew him, and he would come and, and, and eat with the Pharaoh. He was a very wealthy and powerful man, uh, Balaam was. And so Balaam's sons, Janus and Jambres, became such powerful sorcerers that they were so well-respected in their dark arts that they were hired by the most powerful man of that time, the Pharaoh, to serve in his court. And they were powerful enough with the devil that they did duplicate some of the plagues. How many of you guys remember that? Which hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because 
Moses would do something, then they would duplicate it. For example, we know the famous story where they threw down their rod and it became a serpent just like Moses. But Moses' rod ate theirs. So they did duplicate. Now look at what I'm saying here. It says that Paul is saying that society is going to become increasingly evil, that people are going to become increasingly like this descriptive term, And then he goes on to say, in context, that there would be situations begin to arise in the last days like this, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Did y'all hear that? So these men will oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds, worthless in regard to the faith. They will not make further progress for their foolishness will be obvious to all. Just as it was with Janice and Jambres. Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. So here's what Paul seems to be indicating. Could it be that in these last days that there's going to be more and more of a power clash between the servants of the Most High and the devil's servants? Just like there was with Moses, he stood before Pharaoh. He was anointed by God. He carried the the rod that God gave him. There was an authority and a power of God with him. But yet Satan had his servants who also were clothed with satanic power, and there was a power clash. Let me show you. Verse 11, Paul says that there would be persecutions in the last days and sufferings just like our brothers right now in Afghanistan, persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at, at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, Paul was really, he went through it. I mean, he was stoned and beaten and imprisoned. He said there's going to be persecutions in the last days, and we're seeing that right now. And he said, I endured them, and out of them the Lord rescued me, Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many since you've been a true Bible-believing Christian, you have experienced some level of being mocked, ridiculed, you know, oppressed, or something because of your faith? Maybe even they try to get violent. We have. Persecution. Verse 13, this is where I wanted to get. In the last days, but evil people and imposters... Believe it or not, that word imposter means like a warlock, a wizard, some kind of a dark practitioner of the dark arts. That's what it actually means. Look up the Greek word. It means wizard. So it says this, look at this, but evil people and these occultists will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In context here, as I'm reading these things in context and you look at the whole thing, what's called exegete, you read it in context, it seems to me like some of Satan's servants are going to be doing some teaching that's going to lead people astray and there's going to be some actual confrontation between the power of God and the power of the devil that might even be openly displayed in these last days. And it says, you, however... Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And I would echo that. 
River of Life and those that follow our ministry, those that listen to these podcasts, you watch the videos, it goes out there maybe through Facebook. Let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of deception and there's going to be people, you may see them, and I love, I love preachers. There's a lot of good preachers and churches out there, but I'm telling you, it may be even on television. It may be on the internet. It may even be people that are re- renowned, you know, that are going to teach in such a way to lead you astray. You better know the Lord for yourself. You better know the truth for yourself. You better know what the Bible says. Because there's going to be a lot of deception. Now, let me shift gears, and I'll bring it all together at the end. I've studied end-time prophecy since the 90s, over 20 years. And I've even gone in on a personal level because I found it so interesting that I did some real in-depth study on end-time prophecy from people that are spirit-filled, but even people that are more uh, theological and not spirit-filled. I, I've read their studies, etc. I mean, I really went in depth and studied end-time prophecy. I find it very fascinating. And out of that, this is just my personal opinion. I could be wrong. This is just my opinion, okay? But I speculate that the seals that are going to be popped open may already be being popped open. That's just my opinion. Okay, and I think that in my opinion, they might be the birth pangs that Jesus talked about, the beginning of sorrows, okay? The reason I say that, there's a lot of reasons. It's not just like like events going on in my day, but the scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's what Adam gave to the devil and what God gave to Jesus now. Jesus has the title deed to the earth, and when he comes, he's coming to take over, and so when Jesus begins to pop those seals, it's like all this stuff starts happening in the world. Do you remember reading this? Okay. Well, in that, I want you to notice that you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Could it be that these are already marching in the earth right now? Could it be? I'm just asking a question. In my opinion, I suspect this. Now, people that read the book of Revelation, you get baby Christians. Now, understand that this is spiritual horsemen. (laughs) You're not going to see like Fox News or CNN. You see some crazy weird-looking thing on a horse riding around with a banner and like a a sickle or something. That's not what you're going to see. This is spiritual entities here. And so the first being, the first entity that was released is the rider of the white horse, but it is a counterfeit Christ. You know what this is? This is not like the physical Antichrist yet, per se. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And how many knows John said this in 1 John, there are many Antichrists out there, and there have been many down through the ages. There's going to be one final one, and he's going to be the man of sin, the one that the Bible predicted. You know, he's the ultimate antichrist. But this right here, the horse, the rider on the horse, this is a spiritual entity. This is actually the spirit of antichrist. And now let me tell you how the spirit of antichrist is already at work in the world right now. And I suspect, in just my opinion, I suspect that the seal has been popped and this is actually happening. 
Number one, the Bible calls him the man of lawlessness. How many are seeing an increase of lawlessness? You're seeing it in the streets of America. You're seeing lawlessness. You're seeing more anarchy. And in that, you're seeing more disdain and hatred toward authority. You're seeing it in the school system. Lawlessness. A hatred toward law. What do, you think, what do you think is behind? Have you ever considered that the hatred toward police, have you ever considered it's a spirit of lawlessness that's connected with the Antichrist spirit? Isn't that interesting? Not only is it lawless, but the Bible Antichrist obviously implies like an opposition to Christ, an opposition to his people. How many have seen, even in America over the last 20 years, you've seen an increase of hatred and opposition toward Christianity? Antichrist spirit. And the third thing I would say is this. Anti in the Greek implies instead of. So it means a counterfeit Christ. And you're seeing a lot of deception that is getting people to believe in some kind of a Christ that doesn't actually exist. Does that make sense? So like, for example, the, the homosexual community has a homosexual Christ. How many knows that's not the real Jesus Christ? That's a false Christ. And I could go through every religion and every belief system, and they have some kind of a figurehead Christ that is not really the real Christ. And ultimately, the Antichrist himself will be a false messiah to the world an antichrist instead of Christ. Isn't that interesting? So this is great deception. And I wonder about this. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I wonder. I wonder if the other seals are being popped. What about the rider of the red horse? Have you thought about this? The rider of the red horse is war and bloodshed. Possibly... Bible scholars have said possibly even communism. Now think about that before you dismiss that. When you think of red, you think of communism, don't you? But not only that, I want you to think about the amount of bloodshed that communism has actually produced either directly or indirectly. Think about that for a moment. Think about the Soviet Union before you dismiss what I'm, think, what I'm saying. Think back to China. Think back even to China's communists. We fought in Vietnam because of communism. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it has been a, a massive bloodshed in the earth that can be traced back either directly or indirectly because of communism. And not to mention the martyrdom of Christians, the bloodshed there. You see, so the rider of the red horse is stirring up war and bloodshed. Then you look at the rider. How many of you guys have ever seen this maybe depicted? It may be a movie or you've seen it, a meme, you've seen pictures, you've seen the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You guys know what I'm talking about here? Okay. You know, even if people don't know anything about the Bible, they've never read it, they don't have a clue, they usually know Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, right? <laughs> and so here's the, the third horse is the black horse. And this has to do with famine and poverty. 
we're seeing more and more of that. But I love Dr. Cho brought this out. I found this extremely interesting. He said, after war, many times will follow famine and poverty because of the war. So we're seeing an increase of that. And then finally, let me just give you something to think about as well here. The fourth horse of the apocalypse, the ashen horse. This would be like a pale, like an off-white, almost, almost maybe like a grayish color. How many of you guys have ever um, had a campfire and it had that white and gray ash color? That's what I suspect this looks like. So this horse had a rider on it called death. And people that have seen the spirit of death, and I'm talking about credible sources here, have seen the spirit of death appear, not that it's always this way, but seen this thing appear like what you would picture the grim reaper, including the sickle. Now look at what it says here. If you read the scripture, it says that the rider was death and Hades followed behind. Have you considered the fact that just like, let me just give you something to think about. Just like in these last days, Matthew 13, 39 says, the end of the age is the harvest, the harvesters are the angels. So we see in the book of Revelation, we see this angel that has this huge sickle that comes across the earth. You know what's happening there? Great sweeping revivals that usher in hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people into the kingdom. I could just picture the angel of the Lord during the 90s under Reinhard Bonnke standing over the African continent, laying the sickle to Africa, and millions of people swept into the kingdom, you see? But did you know that Satan also has a reaper that has a sickle? And it made me wonder about this because the Bible specifically says the rider was death, and right behind him was Hades. Who's Hades? The spirit of hell. So please picture this with me. It's a satanic harvest of hell to try to usher as many people, kill them and usher them into hell as possible. It's hell's harvest. Are y'all seeing this? And look at what it says. It says that this ashen horse would use these means to bring about death. The sword, that's war, not just an actual sword, violence, bullets. However it comes about, it would be death through violence. And then it says famine. Then it says, look at this, plagues. Hello? How many people around the world are being swept into death through current plagues? You see? And finally, it says wild beast, which could be literally lions, tigers, bears, etc. but it also may be a reference to powerful demonic forces. But let me just ask a question, and I think that you guys would agree with me. I don't think that things like COVID, I personally don't think that it is just a physical thing alone. I think that there's a spirit behind it. And I wonder if it's not something like what the Bible is saying right here, some type of a spirit of death with Hades following behind it that's using plagues to usher in many. It's, a, it's hell's harvest. 
And I, and I know that there's believers too that are dying and they go to be with Jesus. I'm certainly not saying that they don't, but I'm just saying that there's many that don't know the Lord that are being swept in. They're being killed prematurely through plagues and swept down into hell. You see the writer is death with hell following behind. It's hell's sickle. And um, now I'm going somewhere with this. I'm gonna kind of bring it all together here at the end. We've got to be ready. We see these things happening on the earth. I just gave you a couple things. I could talk about Israel. I could talk about the Gog and Magog war. I could talk about um, the ecumenical movement to unite religions. I could talk about technology that's preparing for the mark of the beast. I could look at the geopolitical scene because I know end time prophecy and begin to tell you different things going on. I'm only giving you a couple things tonight that are happening in the earth. But let me tell you, there are many. And the Bible says in Matthew 24, 36, but at that day and hour, nobody knows the exact day, the 24-hour period. Nobody knows the exact hour, the 60-minute period. Not even the angels, but the Father only. So we've got to be ready. The Lord could come at any time. And when we get into these fall feasts, I start thinking about the coming of the Lord so much because the day of the blasting of the shofar, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets speaks of that catching away where we meet the Lord in the air. And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, speaks of the seven-year tribulation, which are the days of Jacob's trouble. Israel's the center. The earth is being judged. And then finally, at the end of that, tabernacle speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the earth physically to sit on the throne of David and reign over the nations for a thousand years and tabernacle with us. And I think about these times. But let me tell you that even though we don't know the exact 24-hour period and we don't know the exact moment, the Bible does teach us that we do need to sense the nearness. In fact, Jesus rebuked, I'm going to show you in Luke 12, 54, Jesus said to the crowds, whenever you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, hey, a shower's coming, it's going to rain, and so it turns out. He said, whenever you feel the south wind beginning to blow, you say, hey, it's going to be a hot day, and you know what? It is a hot day. And he said, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how is it that you do not know how to analyze the present time? Jesus rebuked that generation because they didn't know prophecy and they didn't recognize his coming. Hello? And so even though we may not know the exact 24-hour period that we can't say, well, at 1230 on this date, we can't do that, yet at the same time we should know that he is coming soon and we should sense his nearness. But how many people out there are totally clueless and they're just going through life like nothing's going on? All these signs are happening in the earth, yet they can't see one of them. So I close with these last two things. Number one, how to live in victory in these latter days. Let me just encourage people about these. I'm just going to read over them. We better make sure, because the Bible says the Lord's coming for a bribe without spot or blemish. In Zechariah 2, verse 3, it says, Seek righteousness and seek humility, and perhaps be hid in the day of the Lord's judgment or wrath or whatever. Seek righteousness and humility. 
If you want to truly live in victory in these last days, number one, let's make sure that everything is right between us and God. Let's seek to be righteous and very, very humble before God. Number two, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul says the blood of our Passover lamb has been shed. And you can't help but think about in the book of Revelation how the Antichrist is like a Pharaoh and the judgments coming on the earth are like the plagues that fell on Egypt. I mean, the parallel is there. But yet as these things are going on and and possibly, in my opinion, I think it's so, but it's possible that some of these seals are already being popped and these things are going on in the earth. And here's what we need to do. We need to use the wisdom of the scriptures and bring our lives and our families under the blood of the Passover lamb daily and that there's great protection under the blood. Don't ever minimize that because death and destruction had to pass over. Let me just encourage you that the story was death. I mean, I was just reading to you here about the ashen horse. Who was the rider of the ashen horse? Death. Who was it that marched through Egypt on that night? The spirit of what? Death. And so these things are going to be in the earth. There's going to be death and destruction in the earth. Like, hear what I'm saying. It's like hell is releasing spirits of death and destruction in the earth. How can we live protected from it where it has to pass over us and our family and go somewhere else? Scripturally, by coming under the blood of our Passover lamb. Amen? So daily, I would encourage people come under the blood. One of the more powerful ways you can come up under the blood is by taking the Lord's Supper. I strongly recommend that people take it daily, especially if you're married, take it with your spouse Bring daily, bring your family, what you own, your property, bring it under the blood. I personally don't think there's anything strange with taking the communion and taking some of the juice and putting it over the doorpost of a home and saying, Lord, this property is under the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And maybe taking some of that juice and pouring it out on your property and say, you know what? This property is under the blood of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? That means death and destruction passes over. You know what? That means hell cannot trespass here. Number three, we better learn to speak the word of God and have faith. And the Bible talks about the shield of faith. See, faith is connected by what we say. So what you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. And if you believe God's word in your heart and you're speaking his word out loud, I hope y'all hear what I'm saying here, it produces your faith in your heart and what you're saying, it produces a shield of faith going up and a sword driving the enemy out. It's both. The word, it's your faith in your heart with what you're saying because your faith is released. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth. Your heart faith is released out of your mouth. So it produces like a big shield And let me encourage you to grow in faith because in these last days, you don't want some teeny tiny little shield like this. Okay, you want to have a big shield that's big enough to cover your property and all your family. 
even if they don't live with you. So there's a, there's a believing in the heart and a speaking and the word of God producing a shield of faith up over you. And then also the word of God is used to drive the enemy out, a sword like Jesus. Satan came, Jesus said, well, excuse me, but it is written. And when he quoted it, what happened the third time the devil left him? There's a driving out the enemy by the word of God. Number four, I strongly encourage people to learn about the mystery and power of speaking blessings. Man, this is a foreign concept in America. But for us to move from curse to blessing, we've got to understand these principles. There is a power in blessings, an awesome power. I'm not talking about faith confessions. I'm not talking about prophesying, and I'm not talking about praying about things. I'm not even talking about just being a positive person. I'm talking about using your faith to speak out and put a blessing on a person, place, or thing. And those blessings that go on a person, place, or thing will create change. That's why Jesus, you know, when it came time that Jesus had the loaves and fishes, what does the Bible say? He did not prophesy over them although he could have if God the Father wanted. He didn't pray. What did he do? He blessed them. And what happened when Jesus blessed the loaves and fishes? They began to supernaturally multiply. I wonder what it would be like if we really understood blessings and we began to take like the offerings of a church or we began to take our our finances and we understood biblical principles to where we could put by faith, speak and put a blessing on something that actually caused it to multiply and increase. Because there's people that get in situations where they need multiplication. They need increase. And let me tell you, it brings change. You know, when God talked about Abraham and Sarah, God allowed them to get so old that it was impossible, like he always does. He waits till he's going to get all the glory. But he waited till Sarah, but what does the Bible say? He did not say about Sarah that I'll heal you. He said about Sarah, he said, I will bless you and you will have a a child. Did y'all catch that? That's an important thing I just said. He did not say, I'll heal your womb. No, he didn't. He said, I'm going to bless that womb and then it will produce. So blessings, I've taught on them the last six weeks or so. I think you get the idea. But you can stand in the office of authority, especially as like the man of a house, the pastor of a church, the father of a family, a grandfather, somebody of authority. And you can stand there and you can invoke and speak a blessing on your property, and it is powerful. You can speak a blessing over your family. And I know when Dad stood up here and did that, I I recorded that. That was powerful. You see, if people will receive these blessings, they come on you. Abraham went around, and Abraham had on him kind of like a coat of many colors, if you will. Spiritually speaking, there was a blessing God had put on him that influenced his entire life, and it influenced every person he came in contact with. It would turn negative things in his favor. It caused the blessing of God on Abraham that went to Isaac and that went to Jacob the blessing of God caused their cattle, their sheep, their goats to produce more than they should. 
Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It caused their crops to produce to the degree that even Isaac didn't have any rain and it still produced a hundredfold. That's supernatural. The blessing of God caused that everything they owned was blessed. Their family was blessed. So put a blessing. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, don't repay evil for evil. If you want to turn things around, it says contrawise, like not clockwise, but go against the grain. Because how many knows in this fallen world, when people start cursing you, the first thing you want to do is curse them back real good, right? But he's saying here, go the other way with it. If you'll go against your flesh, go against the grain, and you'll bless the person and bless the situation, it'll turn. So learn to bless, and it says you'll inherit a blessing. Then the next thing I would say is this. Make sure that you're under a strong spiritual covering. Did y'all hear what I said? Jesus would have been the ultimate covering here, but Jesus had his, his followers with him, and when he was praying in John chapter 17, he was praying about his followers, his disciples, and he said, Father, not one of them has been lost. Are y'all looking, look this way, listen to me. This is important tonight. This is important. Don't miss this. Don't get distracted. This is important. Jesus said, not one of them has been lost. They had stayed with him, and they were under his spiritual covering, and not one had been lost. He said, except the one that was predetermined to be so. That was Judas. But he said, they have not been lost. Isn't that interesting? In these latter days, we better make sure that we're up under a strong spiritual covering the right church, that's a praying church that's anointed, there is an umbrella, there's a covering there. You don't see it with your eyes, but I promise you it's there. And the last thing I would say is have a very strong personal prayer life. We've got to have that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went and prayed an hour at a time three times, and he kept coming back, and they were sleeping. And you know what? When, when everything broke loose, they were the ones that scattered, didn't they? They weren't ready. And Jesus warned them. He said, if you, you better pray. Because you mean well, your spirit's willing, and you have good desires down in here. But he said, your flesh is weak. You better pray. And they weren't ready when everything hit. So just be careful because we're going to have to have strong personal prayer lives. And tonight at Yom Teruah, that was the first thing I want to close with, and this is the last, is Matthew 25. I encourage you to read Matthew chapter 25 this week in regards to the coming of the Lord. This is the clearest picture of the rapture we see in Jesus' teaching. He said that the kingdom of heaven is comparable to ten virgins. It didn't say seven virgins and three harlots. All ten of these were God's people. And they took lamps and went out to meet the groom. So they all had lamps. They were looking for the Lord to come, but five were foolish and five were wise. What made the wise wise was this. For when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take extra oil. So we know the extra oil is the key here. But the wise ones took oil and flask and their lamps. And now the groom was delaying. And everybody became drowsy. That reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? They all began to sleep. And at midnight, there finally came a shout. Behold the groom. 
come out to meet him. And then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil because our lamps have gone out. However, the wise one said, no, there's not going to be enough oil for the both of us. You need to go buy some for yourself. But the, while they were on their way to get the oil, the groom came. Those that were ready, everybody say ready. Those that were ready went with the Lord to the wedding feast and the door was shut. It was over. Yet the others came later, and they're knocking on heaven's door, so to speak. They're praying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on your alert then, because you do not know the day nor the hour. And Ephesians 5.26 says that the, he said that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word, and present her to himself, the church, in all of her glory, with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she would be holy and blameless. In Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. It was given to her, clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. So not everybody's going to be ready. So this is how I wanted to finish this, and I know that you all have heard this, but there are people that haven't, so I need to just quickly share about the ancient wedding feast or the wedding of an ancient Israeli wedding. And this is so prophetic because in Jesus' day, this would have been how it was. So we just read Matthew 25. Keep this in mind. So the women go out to the well. The young virgins that were not married, they were out at the well. Their job was to draw in water. So if a young man was interested in getting married, he would go to the well and he would look. And if he found a young lady that was, he was interested in marrying her, he would go to her father and they would begin to talk about the price. If y'all could please just look this way. It's important. Give me your best here. They would talk about the price. And so there had to be a price paid. And so they would agree on a dowry, and that young man would pay the price for the bride, just as Jesus had to pay the price. And she was brought in because she had to agree. Remember earlier in the service, I told you about the betrothal cup? They would set a cup of the fruit of the vine there on the table. If she agreed to the marriage, the father, her father, and the groom had agreed on a price. The price was now paid, but she had to agree if she agreed, she would drink the fruit of the vine. I believe that's a picture and type of the communion table. Because the Bible says, do this and remember it to me till I come. Anyway, once she agreed, now she's betrothed, she's spoken for, she's engaged. And so she would still have to go do her chores because he was going to go away and prepare a place for her. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so she had to go on with her life until he came, but she didn't know the day nor the hour that he would return. This was the custom. And so what she would do now when she went to draw water, she would put a veil on her face. And so if another young man was out there interested in getting married and he was scoping out somebody to marry, he would know that the ones that were um, veiled were off limits. They were betrothed. They, they were engaged. She, she had to keep herself pure for him. Now, he went back to his father's house, and he was building a bridal chamber connected to the father's house. And that bridal chamber was for her, because under the law of Moses, when somebody got married, they were exempt for, for a year 
from things like going to war or whatever so they could be together. And he was building a place for her. And as the, as the custom was, this is very different than the way we do things now, but as the custom was, everybody knew this at the time. Nobody knew the day nor the hour, but the groom's father, and everybody knew that saying because the groom's father would come in and he would look at the bridal chamber. And when he, when he felt that his son had got everything ready, he would tell his son, go get your bride. But that could take up to a couple years. But he would tell him, go get your bride. And so in the middle of the night, he would gather the friends of the bridegroom. And this was a, a joyous thing. But now he was going to go as a thief in the night. And he would go through the streets, and all of his friends were with him. And they were blasting the shofar, and they were dancing and playing like the tambourine and singing songs. And, and people would get woken up by this. And they would probably smile at each other and say to one, one another, there's a wedding that's about to take place in Israel. Because they recognized the procession. And he would go, as a thief in the night, he would go to his bride-to-be's house and steal her away out the window in the middle of the night. And she had to be ready. When she heard, please hear what I'm saying, when she heard the procession, she heard the shofar blast, and she heard the singing in the procession, she knew they could be late. It could be 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Her lamp would have burned out and the oil would be gone, so she always had to keep a reserve of oil. And she finally heard him one day. She kept herself pure. She was looking for his appearing every night. She had that extra oil there by the bed. And so she would quickly open it up and dump the oil in and light her lamp. And she was ready as soon as he came for her to be stolen away in the night. It's a picture and type of the rapture. When the remnant bride of Christ who's made themselves ready will be stolen away in the night, caught away as a thief in the night to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but not everybody's going to be ready. And this is what I wanted to say at the end. There were five wise and five foolish virgins. All of them were virgins. And I want you to think about this for a moment. How many of us are ready? We've kept ourselves pure, but also we're filled with extra oil. We better keep our lamps burning. That's our prayer lives. And we better stay filled with extra oil. That's the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And the Bible promises God will pour out his spirit in these last days. But I'm going to tell you that I, I look at the church today, and not everybody's ready. And so I encourage people tonight, we see the signs. We see all these crazy things going on. We need to make sure that we are a bride without spot or blemish, that we're filled with extra oil, that we're looking for his appearing, that we're ready to meet him when he comes as a thief in the night. Because his first appearing is going to be in the air. It's going to be a twinkling of an eye, a shofar blast, the shout caught up. It's quick. It's a thief in the night. It's a suddenly. The earth will blink, and all of a sudden, people are gone. But his final appearing at the end of the tribulation time, all eyes will see him. It's not going to be some thief in the night by any means. It's going to be like lightning flashing, all eyes will see him. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. It won't be in the air, and he's going to physically go into Jerusalem to reign. But I want to be ready when he comes as a thief. I want my lamp trimmed. I want extra oil. I want my garments spotless. I want to be ready. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your word tonight. We bless you as we move into a time here, a little bit of prayer. 
we just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in every life. We bless you, and we thank you, Lord, for uh, the word of God going forth. Let this go forth and bear fruit in Jesus' mighty name. All right, let's close down recordings. Let me know when you're done. And I want us to spend a few moments in prayer tonight before we get into the next thing that we're going to do.